BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. What's bombing my neighborhoods filled with women in? This is not uh, an intro. I should... I should continue. Uh, I don't know. I don't. How do you? How do you open part two of the episode on Bashar al-Assad, the greatest mass murderer of the 21st century? What? Not that way. That was clearly wrong. Uh, wildly, wildly wrong. Never should have been attempted. Sophie is shaking her head at me. Anna like, is what's putting on a hood. Oh damn! No, I thought you were going to be ashamed too, but you just doubled down. I appreciate that. You know, it's a true friend who sees you digging your own grave and grabs a shovel and is like, yeah, let's fucking make this hole bigger. <laughs> that's I I that's a mark of friendship. <laughs> now, Anna, you know, we uh, had a lot of fun. No, we didn't. Uh, you're the co-host of the Ethnically Ambiguous podcast. Yes, um, I am. And uh, we're talking about Bashar al-Assad. So my favorite, um, probably micro penis holder. Oh my god! If you added six inches to his dick, you'd still need tweezers to find it. God, it's probably non-existent, yeah. which is why he's so angry. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, I'll, that's like, why he wanted to get his eyes. You know, he wanted to fix everyone's eyes so they could see his penis because he's being like, no one can seem <laughs> to see it. So maybe I'll become an optometrist. Maybe someone will fucking see my penis. You then see, I won't have to Anna, murder everybody. I, w- I was going to go on this thing about how we shouldn't, like, demonize micropenises, but then you made a really fucking good joke. and uh, <laughs> I, <that's laughs> We shouldn't demonize micropenises, <laughs> yeah. because if you have one, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. The fact that you can, matter, still, you can still come, and that's all that matters. You can still have children. That is all that matters. And if you can't come, that that's fine, too. Uh, uh, I'll only I don't know. We're, we're getting it. way off the subject of Bashar al-Assad here. 
<laughs> well, I feel like I, I'll only demonize it if you are someone like Bashar al-Assad who who takes it out on other people by murdering yeah. women yeah. and children. Like I wouldn't, civilians. I would never make fun of anyone for having a squeaky voice. But if you're like a little fascist uh, yeah. media personality who argues about how all Muslims are monsters, and you have a voice that sounds like you've been inhaling helium for the last thirty years, and your name's Ben Shapiro, I might make fun of that. <laughs> like, hey, I'm popular, okay? I'm popular. <laughs> so, Anna. Yes. Uh, do you know the name uh, Mohammed Braziz? No. Uh, well, he was a 25-year-old man in the year 2010. He worked as a street vendor in Tunisia. Uh, his father had died when he was young, and Muhammad wound up supporting his family through a very rough economy, even managing to pay for one of his sisters to attend university. He seems to have been a real stand-up guy. Dropped out of school, you know, put his own dreams on hold in order to take care of, like, several brothers and sisters and, like, a, a couple of elderly relatives. Uh, now, for some reason, local police officers took a dislike to Mohammed. Uh, they regularly confiscated his wares, likely because he could not afford to bribe them not to do so. Ugh. One day, in mid-December 2010, this happened again, and Muhammad tried to seek redress through the organs of his local government. But Tunisia was a state ruled by an autocratic dictator and an ossified bureaucracy that existed primarily to let people with family connections make money by fucking over poor folks like Mohammed Boaziz. His quest ended at the governor, who refused to talk to him, even after Mohammed said, If you don't see me, I'll burn myself. Mohammed immediately left to do just that. He acquired a can of gasoline from a nearby station and lit himself on fire in front of the governor's office. He died on January 4th, 2011, after days of unspeakable agony. But in death, the governor and the dictatorial president of Tunisia could not ignore Mohammed Boaziz. His death is generally seen as having ignited the Arab Spring, which overthrew the president of Tunisia as well as the dictators of Egypt and Libya. For a time, Bashar al-Assad thought he would be safe from the fires of revolution sweeping through the Arab world. David Lesh is the writer who spent a lot of time with Bashar. We heard about him in the last episode. Uh, he wrote a book called The Fall of the House of Assad. It cites several articles that the regime published during this time, both in its own magazine, Forward, and in a Wall Street Journal interview with Assad. Quote, both articles in the February issue reflected the president's and the regime's sense of immunity from the virus of protest spreading elsewhere in the Arab world. The editor-in-chief of the magazine, Dr. Samim Mubayad, is a professor of international relations in the country and one of its foremost commentators. He has access to high places in Syria, and therefore his essays often reflect regime sentiments. For this issue, he wrote a piece entitled, Lesson from Egypt, West is Not Best. In it, Mubayad repeatedly hammers home the point that the dictators in the Arab world who had either fallen by then, President Bin Ali in Tunisia, or were on their way out, President Husni Mubarak of Egypt and President Abdullah Saleh in Yemen, were being run out of office by widespread popular protest primarily because over the years they had been the lackeys of the West, particularly of the United States. Hmm. So, Assad and his cronies at first thought they would be safe from the Arab Spring because, of course, Assad hadn't been an American lackey. Right. Mubayad's article ends, ironically, by accurately describing the forces then sweeping the Arab world, which they just didn't think were going to come for them. 
Quote, what is so beautiful about the Tunisian and Egyptian stories is that this time it wasn't flamboyant and inexperienced young officers toppling the young king, nor was it turbaned clerics toppling an autocratic and aging royal, like Iran 1979. It was also not U.S. tanks rubbling into Tunisia, as was the case with Baghdad in 2003. It was the people of Tunisia, the young and the old, the intellectual and the unemployed. It was the glorious people of Egypt who said, enough is enough. What Mubayet and other Assadists did not see is that the exact same forces that had made Tunisia ripe for revolution, endemic crushing corruption that robbed young people of paths towards a decent life and left them hopeless, underemployed, and enraged, that was present in Syria as well. While Assad had opened up the economy somewhat, every reform was calculated in one way or another to benefit his core supporters or gain him new supporters, because every dictatorship in every country is just a gigantic gangster enterprise when you get right down to it. Wait, so they, he thought that his people hadn't noticed what he was up to, basically. He, he thought his people loved him and that they would not revolt because he hadn't been a lackey of the U.S. He thought the Arab Spring was people being angry at dictators in their region uh, doing what the U.S. wanted. And he was like, well, I'm, I don't like the U.S., so people will back me. Like, obviously, they're going to keep loving Bashar. God, these dudes... Mm-hmm. They have no, that's what's but, crazy is like they have no sense of what's going on around them like no. at all no that's what happens when you have the mukabarat like yeah, arresting guess. and torturing everybody who is like maybe things could be less corrupt i guess you don't oh, now you don't I'm being pay tortured. people to tell you anything negative you pay people to tell you we have arrested x number of dissidents and right. they are in a dark hole Instead of being yeah. like, uh, just FYI, like, so we took a survey and it looks like um, people like think you're shady. Yeah. People don't <laughs> like that we throw so many people in the dark holes. The, actually, the dark hole approval rating is like 8%. Yeah, no, no one's and- liking this. Yeah, no, almost no one's. We like the dark holes. That's the eight percent. Is the is the Mokabarat vote? Uh, they vote for dark holes, but everyone else really against the dark holes that we throw dissidents into. Yeah, it looks like we're not we're not getting the numbers we were hoping for dark holes. Uh, we're ooh. thinking of rebranding the dark hole that we yeah. throw dissidents into. What you about know, uh, what about this rainbow circle? I love it. Yeah, I love it. That's the, I forget which one of us now is the branding <laughs> advisor. <but laughs> in February 2011, Mouya Siasna, a 14-year-old kid, was hanging out with his friends in the Syrian town of Dara. Tunisia's dictator had just been forced out of power, and these kids were ornery. So they scared up some red paint and daubed, Your turn, doctor, mm-hmm. on the walls of their school. Now, Dara is a fairly small rural town near the border mm-hmm. with Jordan. At that point, Syria was in the grip of an intense drought, which had reduced crop yields and crippled the already stumbling economy. Youth unemployment was particularly bad, and Mouya and his friends had little hope of growing up in a world with many options for them if things continued on the way they were going. So they painted a threat against their dictator on the wall of their school. And soon after that, all hell broke loose. Assad's men quickly arrested the 10th graders and sent them back to Damascus to be brutally tortured by a bunch of Nazi-trained torture experts. This was a pretty normal move for the Mukhabarat, but unknown to Bashar and those secret policemen, the winds of the world had just changed. The people of Dara were, quite suddenly, unwilling to accept this kind of bullshit. 
on March of 2011, they took to the streets. Hundreds right. of people, many of them relatives of the arrested boys, protested the regime. The crowd grew to thousands. Bashar's police opened fire, killing four and dispersing the crowd. But the next day, 20,000 furious Syrians took to the streets. In the days that followed, things grew more violent, and Mukhabarat offices were vandalized. More protesters were murdered in larger numbers. Funerals of the dead became protests, and so the regime banned funerals. Yeah. <laughs> When you're banning funerals, you might be a monstrous totalitarian dictator. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that these kids had no idea what they were about to literally, like, domino effect Mm -hmm. into, but, like... How could they have possibly known? Yeah, That's so... I mean, you're banning funerals? It's like, then stop fucking killing everybody. Maybe, like, take it as a goddamn hint if people are this upset. Maybe you shouldn't be just Real easy way to reduce the funerals. Yeah. (laughs) Stop killing people. I guess common now, sense isn't a thing within regimes, so I don't know what I'm even saying. Yeah, I mean, it's a type of common sense uh, within the logic of murdering people. Within uh, regime logic, where you're like, well, yeah, you within know, common sense logic. says that we, you know, have to um, murder everyone who stands up to us. Yeah, if you're a regime, it makes sense. Yeah. None of this worked to stop the growing unrest. A single act of childish graffiti in Dara wound up being the spark that started the Syrian civil war, which is, so far, the deadliest civil war of the 21st century. According to David Lesh, quote, It is almost certain that Bashar al-Assad was absolutely shocked when the uprisings in the Arab world started to seep into his country in March 2011. I believe he truly thought he was safe and secure and popular in the country and was beyond condemnation, but this was not the case in the Middle East of 2011, where the stream of information via the internet, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and mobile phones could not be controlled as it once had been. On March 24, 2011, Bashar al-Assad addressed his nation over the continuing unrest. He promised vague reforms, which, of course, he could not actually deliver upon. Any reforms to reduce corruption would be taking money out of the pockets of his supporters, which, of course, he could not afford to do at the moment. Any actual political openness would be seized upon as weakness and lead to his fall from power. So he promised nothing and ended his speech with, quote, I shall remain the faithful brother and comrade who will walk with his people and lead them to build the Syria we love, the Syria we are proud of, the Syria which is invincible to its enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, I do wonder if he like he just was in over his head and started. I mean, not that I'm in any way defending Bashar al-Assad, no, but no, I no, wonder no, if he was Nobody's in over that. his head and then just started to panic, like just being like, yeah, 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 kill, kill them all, kill them all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then now he's like, shit. Well, now that I've like in my panic, have started acting like a full psycho. I guess I just have to, like, keep it going? Yeah, you know, there's a version of this where that is what goes on, where he's kind of like a Tsar Nicholas figure, and, like, Mm -hmm. the initial bloodletting is more accidental because of how the regime's set up. That's how the security forces respond. You, the leader, are left grappling with it, but then things hit a certain point, and it's like, well, they're going to kill me, or I can kill all of them. Yeah, there is kind of like a vibe, yeah. like a really dumb vibe where he's like, I guess I'm a dictator now? Like, it's yeah. like, you fucking idiot. Like, you But he had bag. been before. Like, right. you operated Nazi torture dungeons then let the CIA use them. Like, right. Bashar wasn't, yeah, it's, he's, there's definitely an aspect of this that is a guy, like, obviously he didn't want this. Nobody... No, none of these people want there to be a civil war because there's a chance that like you get thrown out of power. Right. Um, I don't know. You know, we'll we'll talk about that more by the end. We'll see what conclusion you come to about uh, right. how how his journey on this. 
For most of the world, Friday, April 1st, was April Fool's Day. In Syria, in 2011, it was the Friday of Martyrs. This was the name given to a day of furious protests across the country, conducted in the name of the dozens who'd been shot dead by security forces and the hundreds who were currently being tortured. This time, Bashar al-Assad ordered snipers up on the roofs of cities around the country. They fired randomly into crowds of activists and shot anyone who broke curfew. Next, according to Lesh's book, quote, in the May and June 2011, the regime continued to engage in a schizophrenic response to the protests. While continuing to make some concessions and announce reform measures, the military and security forces intensified their crackdown on cities across Syria that were hit by demonstrations. To the outside observer, this approach may seem contradictory and indicative of fissures within the ruling elite on how to respond to the crisis. On the other hand, from the perspective of Bashar and his inner circle, it could be seen as two sides of the same coin. In a way that came to be expected of the Assad regimes, old and new, it was something of an axiom of power politics that one offers concessions only from a position of strength, never from a position of weakness. Therefore, while there was also a practical side to the Assad approach in terms of repressing the unrest, it also clearly indicated that the regime wanted to portray itself as only making concessions and offering reform measures from a position of strength. Hmm. So he just... Okay, sorry. I'm the... God, what is... Yeah, no, I mean... He, he wants to, he's willing to give people concessions, but only if he stays in control. And the only way to stay in control is to kill people. Right. But he didn't really, yeah. like, what were these concessions? Like, did any did anything come of that? Yeah, no, not really. Like, okay. it was the same as the concessions he offered at the start of his reign, where it's like, oh, I'll open things up. But, like, you already did that and then close them down again because it was bad for you. Like, why would you trust Bashar al-Assad at this point? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the people who died so Bashar could offer reform from a position of strength was Hamza al-Khatib. He was 13 years old when he went missing on the 29th of April. His battered and abused corpse was returned to his family a month later. His family shared pictures of their boy's torn-up body on social media and rage at his murder spread virally. Assad's government, of course, denied torturing the child. They had a doctor who worked for the government examine the body. He concluded that all of the scars and holes and injuries were not consistent with torture. Bashar al-Assad made a big show of visiting the family to share his uh, sadness at this tragic and inexplicable death that he and his security apparatus had no role in. They're like, yeah, Uh, yeah, looks like, uh, no, no torture here. So sorry about your boy. What a mystery. Yeah, you know, based on, uh, you know, my uh, work as an optometrist, I can see there is no torture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his eyes look great. Look good, good. Like you fucking now, piece of shit. Yeah, real piece of shit. This photo op with the grieving family of a murdered boy did not, shockingly, reduce opposition to the Assad regime. <laughs> A Facebook page was created in his name, garnering 67,000 supporters. One commenter wrote, There is no place left here for a regime after what they did to Hamza. On July 29, 2011, seven Syrian Arab army officers defected from the military, forming the core of the Free Syrian Army. By November, the FSA was strong enough to launch armed attacks on the regime itself. In this way, in stops and starts, the protests and street activism and violent state repression gradually escalated to full-fledged warfare. In January of 2012, Nusra Front, an Islamist rebel group, declared their opposition to the regime. Whole cities wound up in open rebellion to the state. In February 2012, Bashar had his army assault Homs, the third largest city in Syria. 400 people, virtually all of them civilians, were killed on the first day. 
You see, Assad's army crumbled fairly quickly in the face of the rebellion. It had never been a particularly potent force, and many of its men had deserted for the other side once the fighting started. At one point, he had less than 5,000 soldiers in the whole country. So Assad relied heavily on random artillery strikes and equally random bombings by his air force, which was the one thing he had that the rebels did not. The Syrian Air Force was, from the beginning, Assad's greatest weapon against his own people. In August 2012, the regime was filmed dropping its very first barrel bomb on the city of Homs. Now, Anna, you know what a barrel bomb is. Um, yeah. I'm going to guess most people have heard the term. Yeah. It's probably the iconic weapon of the Syrian Civil War, and it's essentially a huge metal barrel packed full of high explosives and shrapnel. Nails, metal bits, whatever. It all functions the same with a few dozen pounds of RDX behind it. Uh, a barrel bomb is the kind of weapon you deploy when you don't care who you kill. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's... There's a video on YouTube that I would recommend listeners watch. Uh, if you just type in Assad barrels, you will find it. Um, it's uh, horrific. Uh, one of the, the the worst things I've ever seen. Like, the, uh, the wake of these bombings is um, almost indescribable. Uh, it's... it's worse than what I've seen in the wake of U.S. airstrikes, which is pretty horrific in and of itself. But an explosive like this, it's just like a particularly awful way to wage war, like even worse than a Hellfire missile. It's like, Um, I don't understand. Like, he's like, oh, you know, that's what's crazy. Like, he says, okay, I'm I'm gonna give concessions. I'm gonna work with you guys so you don't keep protesting me. And then he just goes and like, kills a town what's what's the issue with the regime what's everybody's problem i'm gonna drop just barrels of death on you guys why is it why is nobody like me yeah it's like dude like fucking read the room yeah read the room bashar what no, are we that's... doing here anymore i don't even I, I this is it's so crazy like it's so hard to wrap your mind around someone who in a way like when you first think about it like he didn't want to become the leader yeah he had so much yeah. potential to just be a good human being in an office running a country like c- coming from his point of view of being like i don't really you know want to run a country like i just want to be this regular doctor like blah 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 it's like i could just be an easygoing guy who's like one of the people um i mean honestly it goes back to bad parenting uh but this is insane it's like so insane that he was like all right let's just turn this around and kill everybody Yep, guess I'm murdering. Yeah, and uh, he got right to murdering. Um, I'd like to quote from a Doctors Without Borders article about the use of barrel bombs, uh, primarily in the city of Aleppo during the fighting there. Quote, Barrel bombings in eastern Aleppo are so unpredictable and widespread that they have sown fear throughout the city. It is extremely difficult for someone to take measures to protect their families and improve their safety, which contributes to higher levels of psychological stress. You never know when a bomb can happen. This is the problem. You could be at home having dinner. You could be sleeping. You could be walking to the shop. At any time it might happen, especially coming to Turkey. For those who have to go to Turkey for work or to unite family members, it is a very scary route as you don't know who you might meet and what might happen. You don't know if you will return home safe or see your family again. That's a quote from uh, Tariq, a health worker in uh, Al-Salama, Aleppo. So Bashar al-Assad punished Aleppo and other cities for their disobedience by leveling the vast majority of the buildings there with endless rains of barrel bombs. During the four-year battle for Aleppo, residents would celebrate whenever the weather was cloudy because it meant that they would at least get a few hours break before the next bombs fell. 
One staff member told Doctors Without Borders, quote, One day when we were working at the hospital in eastern Aleppo, it was a day of a high number of barrel bombings. It was like the city was in chaos and lots of people were being brought to us, dead and alive. I remember when two bodies were brought in, an old man and his small grandson. They both had the same name. They must have been together when the bomb hit. The family was searching for them in all the hospitals of Aleppo but couldn't find them. Their neighbors had also been bombed, so there was no one to ask about the whereabouts of these two. Finally, they came and the bodies were identified. It was all just one instance, but still, we all felt so sad. Yeah. There's yep. just no one. That's so sad. There's like just no, you just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen at any point, at any time. You just live in fucking fear that the man who runs your country just may like casually decide to bomb yeah. your town or your home. Just yeah. At, you're just like, oh, well, you know, one of those days. Oh, thank God for the clouds so we don't get barrel bombed. Oh, oh bless good clouds. our souls. The president can't murder us today. Unless the clouds go away. Yeah. Chris Kozak, a Syria research analyst for the Institute of the Study of War, explains that the regime's strategy with barrel bombs is to, quote, inflict mass punishment against opposition-supported populations or populations that were perceived to be supportive of the opposition in order to prevent the formation of a viable alternative to the regime. And it really seems to have worked. Like, the Free Syrian Army at the start was a really secular force run by a lot of really brave men, and it's sort of degraded into kind of a lot of bandits and extremists at this point, just because everybody at the start of this civil war who was, like, providing a viable alternative to Bashar's government and, like, was a hope of civil society, like, he killed them all. Yeah. Um, like, that was a big part of his strategy. He's like, oh, they want to run Syria without me? Well, I'll just murder everybody who can run Syria without me. Right. Yeah. Everyone's that- gone. Yeah, everybody's everybody's gone, and all the survivors are too shell shocked and terrified to do anything but hide. That's the strategy. Do we know how many people are left in his army? No, I mean at this point he's conscripted a lot more, and it's 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 up to a higher level. But there was one point where they were essentially militias and gangs that were allied with the re- regime were way larger than the actual Syrian Arab army. Wow, you know, it, especially also, if you're talking like 2013, 14. Yeah, he has got like help from Iran and other places. God, yeah, fucked. yeah, a lot of yeah. Yeah, help from Iran, help from Hezbollah, right? Um, help from help from Russia. Um, yeah. Bashar's favorite target for his barrel bombs outside of the crowded apartment buildings is hospitals. On one day, he struck Aleppo's M10 hospital with two barrel bombs, two cluster bombs, and one rocket. Now, striking hospitals is a war crime, but Assad figures, what's the harm in committing war crimes when you know nobody is ever going to punish you? They're not really crimes then, are they? He also loves bombing elementary schools. In one 2014 attack, he killed 25 small children with a single bomb. When interviewed by the BBC, Bashar al-Assad denies his regime has ever deployed barrel bombs, saying, It's a childish story that keeps repeating in the West. If someone who is against his people and against regional powers and the great powers in the West, how do they survive? If you kill the Syrian people, do they support you or do they turn against you? As long as you have the public support, it means you are defending the people. If you kill the people, they turn against you. It's common sense. You, You can watch people drop barrels out of syrian air force planes uh onto buildings but you know there's no like he's bombing hospitals because they're like treating people who aren't for him 
Like that's yeah, his logic. Yeah, because they're in rebel-controlled chunks of the city. So and he's like, kill them all. Yeah, a, a big part of it is just completely destroying any kind of resistance to the regime. That's the kind of war he's waging. Like, you know, I was not against when the U.S. went and bombed what they thought were his uh, chemical weapon yeah, factories. Everyone was so I, offended by it, being like, we're going to war. I was like, no, no, we're fucking doing something. Fuck this guy. It's one of those things. Yeah. I mean, we didn't actually. Like, I'm against it because it was completely useless and accomplished nothing. I'm not against attacking the Syrian regime and trying to destroy their chemical weapon stockpiles. But if you're talking about the Trump administration's cruise missile attack, like it just didn't fucking do anything. I know, um, but it was, I like that it was something to be like, we fucking see you, bro. Yeah. Yeah. It's at least it's, it's not nothing. Um, So I'll give it that. Like it's better than nothing, but I, I will say it didn't accomplish anything other than maybe, scaring him a little bit but i don't even know how much it scared him yeah because the next day um, he he fucking released that yeah, photo he, he, of himself walking through with a briefcase which is like motherfucker yeah. why are you even carrying a briefcase yeah what do you keep in that briefcase nothing. bashar like you fucking asshole fucking bishu you you, you baby you got nothing fucking going on. bishu you know who's not an asshole walking with a briefcase through the ruins of his destroyed airfield anna who the, the advertisers who support this show. <laughs> nice. Yes, that's the behind the bastards guarantee. None of our advertisers are Bashar al-Assad and watch the fucking next ad that gets randomly yeah, slotted in. Yeah, it's going to be, be like, like megaphone being like, yeah, let's Damascus choose. Airport now yeah. open for business again. Yeah. <laughs> See the wonderful beaches. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I would love to see Damascus if there was a way to do it without dying. You know, putting putting put it well no i mean it's pretty safe for travelers it's just you'd be putting money into the regime and i don't want to do that but damascus is a city i've always wanted to see Oldest anyway city in uh, the world. yeah it's incredible my uh my arabic teacher was a syrian and oh. uh he was from aleppo and this was back in 2006 um i just remember how much he would talk about how beautiful his city was and right. how proud he was of his country about how we created the alphabet like that's a real thing that the syrians they created have math as like a too, claim of fame they? yeah they fucking made math yeah. yeah horrible tragedy what's happened not a horrible tragedy our our products and services was that a good ad break sophie did we do it right no well it's done <laughs> <laughs> products BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. We're back. We're back after what I have to assume is the best ad break anyone has ever done. Um, it's going to be very like, proud do you like regimes? You're going to love Bashar al-Assad. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just literally an ad for Bashar al-Assad yeah. plays on our site. He's like, hey, guys, I get a lot of heat. But what you don't He's- know <laughs> is I'm actually quite self-deprecating and a real fun guy. And people love my giggle. He's actually he's hosting a new podcast about Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would that'd be so wild. He's like, guys, I love Phil Collins, and my first guests are Brad and Angelina. <laughs> Check it out on the Assadcast. Assadcast. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's a it's a solid it's a solid name. So should we, should we make that podcast? <laughs> no, under no circumstances should we make that podcast. Cool, 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 cool. That, you know, you're right. That's you're not right, you're okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's uh let's not make that podcast. So yeah, you can watch dozens of, of, of uh, videos of Assad's regime dropping barrel bombs if you want to see that yourself for some reason. At least 181,557 civilians have been killed in battle by the Syrian regime, which is 95.7% of the total combat death toll in the Syrian civil war. These are just confirmed dead. With total expected fatalities over half a million, the real number is much likely higher. The regime has killed at least 18,456 children, 93.6% of the children who are known to have died in the Syrian civil war. Now, that number leaves out 128,000 people who have been missing, in many cases for years, inside the secret prisons run by the Bashar al-Assad government. According to the New York Times, quote, Government memos smuggled out of the country show that officials who reported directly to Mr. al-Assad ordered the crackdowns on civilians and knew of atrocities. They ordered a harsh treatment of specific detainees and complained of increasing detainee deaths as corpses piled up and decomposed. One government memo urged personnel to complete paperwork and protect officials from future prosecution. Detainees are regularly beaten, hung by their wrists, beaten while crammed inside tires, shocked with electricity, and sexually assaulted. More Baroque forms of torture include forcing detainees 
detainees to act like animals, beat or kill one another, and dousing them with fuel and burning them. It's possible that more than 100,000 people have died that way. Oh, God. Yeah. Which is, for reference, in Libya since 2011, if you include all of the deaths in the fighting to overthrow Gaddafi and all of the deaths in the violence since Gaddafi's overthrow, 2011-2019, 50,000 people have died from the violence in Libya. Bashar al-Assad has tortured twice that many people to death. Not counting the barrel bombs, not counting the chemical weapons, not counting gunfire, not counting mortars, not counting rockets, not counting Russian airplanes, just torturing people to death. Twice as many people as have died in Libya since 2011 fighting. God bless all damn people. Because fighting for what you believe in in the Middle East is... Mm -hmm. Suicide! Yeah, it's always, for the most part, not going to go the way you would like. Has not in a while. Uh, Now, after all of this horrifying brutality, all these senseless deaths, I know what you're wondering, Anna. How has this war been for Bashar and his lovely wife, Ozma? Well, (laughs) your your face, you do not. She has, like, skin cancer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, cancer, get your boys. Yeah. (laughs) Like... This, these are the people to to happen to, but they'll probably both live to one hundred and three. Um, yeah, but I know you're curious as to to what their daily life has been. Yeah, and uh, the good news is that thousands of their emails were leaked to the Guardian, so we actually have a pretty good idea of what they got up to in between all the barrel bombs and such. First Wait, off, so how did their emails get leaked? Uh, I don't know. It's just something that happens. They confirmed it. The Guardian confirmed it with a number of different people, including recipients of the emails that they were legitimate and stuff. Um, You know, it's one of those things. How did fucking, you know, shitloads of people's emails get leaked out these days? It's just the how it what happens. Got the hackers out there. Them hackers. Now, uh, first off, you going to guess what the Assad's favorite TV show has been during the Civil War? Oh no, like what, like Friends on Netflix? America's Got Talent. Oh my god. Yeah. They are yeah, such you, trash. <laughs> they are basic bitches. I feel comfortable saying that. Ugh. Uh also big fans of the Harry Potter movies. There was some worry at one point that they wouldn't be able to get their hands on Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 because of the war, but they did get a copy. So I'm actually not surprised by that because I bet Bashar sees a lot of himself in like Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably like, you know, this guy makes a lot of good points. You this know? guy's making a lot of, he's saying all the right things. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, but I he was get real surprised so in the last book. He's like, I don't get why everyone's so Yeah. Yeah, good luck, <sighs> Bashar. Yeah. Here's the Guardian. Quote, in one email, al-Assad laughs at democratic reforms. When his wife tells him she'll come home early one day, he quips, this is the best reform any country can have that you told me where you will be. We are going to adopt it instead of the rubbish laws of parties, elections, media. Isn't that funny? How the you, fuck? You don't like his dictator fuck? humor? His humor like, funny guy. Ha, ha, women, am I right? It's like, get mm-hmm. the fuck out of here. You're killing people. Al-Assad joked with Haldil al-Ali, one of his media consultants, while Arab League monitors were in Syria seeking to bring an end to the carnage. Al-Assad ridiculed the mission, sending al-Ali a YouTube parody of the violence that uses children's toys. Check out this video, he wrote. She responded with, ha 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 ha, OMG, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. 
What? Mm-hmm. This bitch. Assad fucking looking up YouTube videos while his forces are murdering people? bombing hospitals. Yeah. The only vague suggestion one gets that Bashar might have something that approaches a conscience comes from an email he sent on February 5th, 2012, on the day after his artillery had killed 400 civilians in the city of Homs, pulping flesh and bone and concrete into a powdered slurry of broken lives. Assad sent his wife an iTunes download of a country song by Blake Shelton. He wrote out some of the lyrics in the email. I've been a walking heartache. I've made a mess of me. The person that I've been lately ain't who I want to be. Are you? I am fucking serious. If that is not a reason to fucking blow his brains out. I know. Like, what are you even talking about? There is nothing relatable about you, fool. No, Nothing. and fucking Blake Shelton, like, also, I'd say listen to Chris Christopherson, but Chris Christopherson's music would, like, destroy itself before it let itself into a dictator's Honestly, ears, I'm actually so. not surprised, because he probably, like, agrees with, like, Blake Shelton's, like, Skittles are for gay people tweets or something yeah, that he yeah, had yeah, that was, yeah. like, so probably. Yeah, Blake Shelton, he makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Fucking Blake Shelton. You should be ashamed, too. Blake, Blake Shelton, a you're a dictator. part of the problem. You're a part of the problem. I would be so bummed out if it turned out a dictator was a fan of any of my work. Oh yeah, like, that's that would so that would be such a fucking bummer. Oh, oh my, god. my god. Yeah, I, I'd be bummed out if I was J.K. Rowling to know that they were watching movies based off my books, even though like you know you didn't do anything wrong there, but like still, bummer. Can you imagine How being can like you... the producers yeah. of America's Got Talent? Like ooh. <laughs> oh no, they they've been playing to the Assad demographic for years. That's a critical part of America's Got Talent. Do you think he's ever tried to make like a serious Got Talent? I bet that's coming once the war ends. And everyone's like performing at gunpoint. <laughs> or it's just Be him good. trying out his hobbies. Yeah. Him doing like a tight five. Yeah, it's uh, guess who wins? Bashar every single time. Mm-hmm. Every year. Oh, it's you again, Bashar. His wife yeah. is the judge. He's yeah. the talent. And it's him versus the memory of his dead brother. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, looks like he can't win because he's dead. Oh, looks who's better at computers now, Basil. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah. oh, boy. What a sad, yeah. sad, sad experience. In July of 2011, when tens of thousands of Syrians were taking to the streets to protest the hopelessness of life under the rule of the Assads and the brutality of the state security apparatus, Asma al-Assad ordered, through her cousin bespoke jewelry from a small jeweler in Paris. She ordered four necklaces. Quote, one turquoise with yellow gold diamonds and a small puff on the side, one full black onyx and amethyst and white gold diamonds. She stated that she hoped it would be ready in September, but she said that she understood if it took longer, telling her cousin, I am absolutely clueless when it comes to fine jewelry. She ended the letter by saying, kisses to you both, and don't worry, we're well. See, someone needs to, like, take it upon themselves to um fill that jewelry with like poison gas that comes out when they put them on or when she that'd be nice i assume they have the jewelry by now but if you can poison the assad's jewelry uh clearly she's gonna buy more i would say do it yeah yeah she's gonna buy if you're a french jeweler just poison all your jewelry that probably we shouldn't be shouldn't be urging that i assume other people buy french jewelry only jewelry Um, that's going to the assad regime only jewelry that's going to the Assad regime. Oh, damn. Uh, another email 
sent in December of 2011 as the protest campaign broke out into a full-fledged civil war. Ozma messaged her husband, quote, if we are strong together, we will overcome this together. I love you. Shortly thereafter, she ordered a $3,000 vase from Harrods. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. I don't like how much reading she all shops this, while this is all going around. She shops a ton. And reading all this, I'm reminded of a quote I came across in a CNN article from former Bush administration officer Flint Leverett. He said of Bashar al-Assad, quote, I think who a man marries says a good deal about him. I think that he was actually correct. <laughs> like... <laughs> The fact that he's married to Marie Antoinette here uh, really, you know, really I, fits. I'm looking at photos of them together right now, and they kind of look like they're siblings. They do a little bit, right? Yeah. They have, like, the same face. Yeah, yeah, the same little ratty face. Now, you'll notice that we've made it through 19 or 20 pages of Bashar al-Assad history without talking about chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of good reasons for this. One of them is that for the last couple of years, a pernicious series of myths and lies has cropped up, helped along by incompetent, senile, or outright ethically compromised journalists claiming that the chemical weapons attacks by Bashar al-Assad on his own people were false flags. These rumors have spread on the far right because actual fascists love Bashar al-Assad, since he is a fascist and he's doing what they'd like to do to all of their political opponents. The same rumors have spread on the far left because it allows leftists to have an easy justification for why they don't think any action should be taken to stop Bashar from carrying out the greatest mass killing of the 21st century. There is no truth to this nonsense. However, I wanted to make it super clear that even if Bashar had never ordered a single chemical weapon strike, he is still the single greatest monster of the 21st century. Yeah. Even if he had never launched any sarin, never dropped any chlorine, like that shit is fucking icing on the piece of shit dictator cake sophie is uh is putting two fingers in front of the camera which means that this is clearly a great time for an ad break nothing gets advertisers excited like talking about chemical weapons attacks now she's flipping me off and i don't understand why anna you look very uncomfortable you know i will not get involved in your guys's you don't want to you don't want to get involved with mommy and daddy fighting. No, uh, I, I which have is no a, comment on what just happened. No comment on what just happened. Well, what's about to happen is products and services. I'm happier about the services and the products. Are we on break? I mean, no. We I haven't said products yet no. in the voice that I say. Are you are you ready for us to be on break, Anna? Are you bored? No, but I was going to tell you something during our break. Oh, okay. Well, products! BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free we're back and uh the thing that anna was going to tell me is that asma al-assad does have cancer now she has breast cancer uh, so sometimes cancer gets it right yeah, that's it's fascinating. It's kind of funny yes. that we said that, and then all of a sudden she got cancer. I hope it spreads to her husband. I'm sure it's aggressive karma, because apparently I was just looking that she was offered asylum to get out of there, and she said no, and then she like oh, yeah. came out against the like airstrikes, being like, so irresponsible for you guys to strike our chemical weapon factories. It's like, what? Dude, lady. <laughs> what, bitch? <laughs> uh, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> With your fucking- I have an idea. Suck a dick, dude. Yeah, no, it's one of those things where I did look into it to make sure she had so many opportunities to get the fuck out. And in fact, there's even suggestions that at one point when the war was going more against the regime, they actually tried to flee the country. But she still stood by her man, so to speak. Like she she was there was at no point where she was like, Bashar, maybe we shouldn't be mass murdering people. Maybe we could just take our ill-gotten money and go live in france or something they could have worked that deal out right and also i just saw a thing part of the emails that leaked that she was saying that she's the real dictator Mm -hmm. yeah she's joked about that a number of times what the fuck dude you're such a bitch she's a monster trust beautiful people in power (laughs) no 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 it's always bad it's always bad uh yeah they're just too damn sexy which is why I did not support Barack Obama's election. No. Yeah. But <laughs> but it did worry me how good looking he was. Um, thankfully, now that we have an ugly man as president, everything's on the up and up. Yeah. It was the same problem with George W. Bush. Too much raw sexual power. Oh, you know, I always it said was that. Just, I know. I know. We all did. We all did. Everyone at the press pool was just tweaking their nipples during mm-hmm. his, uh, <laughs> his briefings. It was, it, was, it was a problem. Now, the deadliest of Bashar's chemical weapons attacks occurred in 2013 when he launched a barrage of rockets containing sarin nerve gas on Ghouta, a rebel-controlled suburb of Damascus. 1,400 people were killed. 
the UN confirmed overwhelming and indisputable evidence of sarin used at the massacre. Gary Quinlan, the Australian UN ambassador and president of the UN Security Council, said in the report on the attack, quote, confirms in our view that there is no remaining doubt it was the regime that used chemical weapons. Mm -hmm. A more recent 2017 chemical weapon attack on Khan Sheikhoun killed 86 people. Doctors Without Borders independently confirmed the use of chemical weapons in this attack. This attack prompted the Trump administration to fire cruise missiles at a mostly empty airbase. Like, there's a lot, like, you can go in a rabbit hole and read a bunch of people pointing out, like, oh, look at this detail of this picture means that these attacks were fake or that there wasn't a chemical weapon or that it was the rebels that did it. It's the same, if you have spent a lot of time looking at 9-11 conspiracies, it's the same bullshit. The difference is that some respectable journalists like Seymour Hersh have gotten caught up in it because in his case, he's fucking old and doesn't know anything about chemical weapons and uh, is one of those people who is reflexively going to be like, whatever America says isn't the truth. Even It's like, fucking, I've, I've seen the U.S. commit war crimes. I've reported on them. Like, fuck everything. Yeah. But fuck pretending these chemical attacks aren't real. There's been like 330 documented chemical weapons attacks. Like 98% of them have been the Syrian regime. There have been a couple by like ISIS and and whatnot who have like made like chlorine gas bombs and shit. But it is very well documented. You can what you can do like go to the Bellingcat articles documenting some of the more recent attacks where they've dropped gas canisters through roofs and like go through every picture of it and look at the documentation and trace back the research for yourself if you really fucking want to. But Doctors Without Borders and the fucking UN uh, observers who have tested like the fucking soil and people's bodies and done thousands of hours of research into this are all on the same page. And it's that the Assad regime has repeatedly deployed chemical weapons against its people. Fuck. Uh, I, I get angry about this. It's very fucked up. It shows how weak they really are. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, and this is, I think, one of the reasons there's a, a conspiracy around this is because a lot of people can't understand why Bashar al-Assad would deploy chemical weapons on his own people and risk foreign intervention. There's this idea that, like, oh, it's just so risky, why would he do it? And I think the answer is that he took the measure of the United States during the Bush years, and for right. eight years he balanced helping the U.S. with hindering it, and he watched our occupation of Iraq turn into a quagmire, mm-hmm. and he came to a very clear and very accurate conclusion that the United States no longer had the guts to intervene seriously in a situation where intervention might cost American lives. And right. he gambled on that gut feeling and he won. It's, it's as simple as that. It's like Hitler gambling on fucking annexing the Sudetenland. Like it was a gamble. It could have fucked up. He had by some accounts more to lose than to win, but everybody else was a fucking coward, so he won. Right. That's how it works with dictators. <laughs> like I know it's it's I mean that's why I'm like you know I have no problem with us I mean I don't even know let's send in at this point at this point there's yeah honey potters and get yeah like at this point I mean the the Syrian regime and the Russian air force is pounding uh, a province called Idlib which has like three million people in it the vast vast majority of whom are civilians I support trying to enforce some sort of no-fly zone to stop those people from being massacred because the same fucking bombings, saturation bombing is happening there. But, like, there's no good... In 2011, 2012, a good thing could have been worked out. Um, right. That's, that, there's no possibility now. There's too many fucking people are dead. Like, yeah. everything's fucked now. We didn't that's do the enough. world. Yeah. So, um, the other reason he deployed chemical weapons is a little bit 
cannier. At the very start of the uprising against his rule, Assad had claimed that the forces behind the rebels were not Syrians, but foreigners trying to undermine his country. Lesh, who's probably the Westerner who knows Bashar's mind best, says that once Assad was able to convince himself of this, any kind of violence was justified, especially since his forces didn't have the manpower to fight street to street to take back the country. Quote, so they need to use the asymmetric methods like chemical weapons to brutalize them. There's a good Quartz article tracking out Assad's decision-making on this. It quotes a couple of Syrian dissidents who suggest that Assad was, quote, invoking something akin to medieval Western monarchs' belief in the divine right of kings. Like his father, he always believed that he had the right to do whatever he wants to his own people, to kill them, torture them, disappear them. They are my own people, and that's the sovereignty I have, explains Ziada. Assad, he says, sees himself as the father punishing his errant sons. The father is allowed to do whatever when the sons make mistakes. He doesn't understand that there is a social contract between the Syrians and elected officials. Yeah. So, yeah. There is a social contract. Don't kill innocent people. Don't massacre women and children and old people with poison from the sky or fire from the sky. Dude, Uh, anyone could have told you that. Well, I mean, a lot of countries do that. Uh, It's not as obvious a lesson. Not that I'm defending them, but like, we could stand to use that lesson too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Whatever the truth of Assad's thinking, time has proven him right on the bet that the U.S. and the international community would never be willing to take a stand against him. No. In 2018, Ben Rhodes, President Obama's deputy national security advisor and host of Pot Safe America, uh, right? He's one of the hosts of that. I have um, no idea wrote uh, an article for The Atlantic titled Inside the White House During the Syrian Red Line Crisis. He traces out how the Obama White House went from shock and rage and an impulse to do something at the Syrian chemical weapons attacks to gradually conferring with other world leaders and backing down. There were a number of reasons for this. Fear of being drawn into a disaster like Iraq, fear of having the Republicans use intervention against them as they had in Libya, concerns about Assad's chemical weapons winding up in the hands of terrorists. In the picture Ben paints, by the end of the decision-making process, the ideologues in the administration had been beaten down by realpolitik. They'd all been inspired by writings Obama had put out prior in his presidency, arguing that the U.S. could have saved lives by intervening in Rwanda during that genocide. But after weeks of debate over whether or not to enforce the red line in Syria, Ben and the president had this conversation. Quote, Maybe we never would have done Rwanda, Obama said. The comment was jarring. Obama had written about how we should have intervened in Rwanda, and people like me had been deeply influenced by that inaction. But he also frequently pointed out that the people urging intervention in Syria had been silent when millions of people were killed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There's no way there would have been any appetite for that in Congress. You could have done things short of war, I said. Like what? Like jamming the radio signals they were using to incite people. He waved his hand at me dismissively. That's wishful thinking. You can't stop people from killing each other like that. He let the thought hang in the air. I'm just saying, maybe there's never a time when the American people are going to support this kind of thing. In Libya, everything went right. We saved thousands of lives. We didn't have a single casualty, and we took out a dictator who killed hundreds of Americans. And at home, it was a negative. I saw what he had been doing, testing Congress, testing public opinion to see what the real maneuvering room was for his office when it came to intervention in Syria. It was the same thing he'd done in situation room meetings on Syria and in his mind, testing whether anything we did could make things better there or whether it would turn out to be like Afghanistan and Iraq, if not worse. It wasn't just politics he was wrestling with. It was something more fundamental about America, our willingness to take on another war, a war whose primary justification would be humanitarian, a war likely to end badly. People always say never again, he said, 
but they never want to do anything. You know, there's a real darkness to all that, obviously, because politics is all dark. But yeah. the idea that we were so damaged by what happened with the Iraq war and yeah. the Bush administration and Dick Cheney that now like any sort of step of like we're going to another country it doesn't matter if we're helping or what we're doing sending troops no mm. matter what there's such a negative reaction to it that that we can't do anything to help these people because the American yeah. public loses their minds like we can't see beyond what Dick Cheney and Bush did and so now all these people are basically just gonna die and we can't we're just like literally like tiptoeing around being like Ugh, should we Ugh, yeah can we Ugh. And, like it's it's actually very insane how literally i mean it all goes back to fucking piece of shit ass the bush dynasty and dick yeah. cheney and the fucking and it, devils they were have it, ruined anyone's chance of wanting to go into syria and being like wait let's go stop this and it, it's a lot of that playing on a, a bit of racism, too, even among people on the left, to where it's this idea of like, well, but look at Iraq. And it's like, they're two different countries and two completely yeah. different groups of people. They're not yeah. the same country. They're yeah. not the same place. And it's it's also not the same, like, why did Iraq go so badly? Well, you can kind of trace it back to the fact that the day after we conquered it, we fired the entire army and put half a million men out of work with their guns. And they made an insurgency. Like, a, a lot of it, you can tie back to that. Like, it's it's... Number one, the fact that, like, nobody in America has a very nuanced understanding of these places or these struggles. Um, And, like, one of the things I tried to do in this episode is really trace out how the Civil War evolved um, out of protest into fighting. Because one of the things I hear a lot when I argue with people who are on the left is, like, well, you know, the U.S. was funding the rebels the whole time. And it's like, no, dude. Like, we eventually started giving them some aid, and it was too little too late, and it was mm-hmm. mostly shitty and small arms, and it was like, like, yeah, we funded some of the rebel groups, like, but the people started the civil war by wanting to not have a dictator murdered them. Right. And they were active in the streets for months, fighting and building connections between one another and building a revolution. Right. Like... And it's fucking racist to say that the Civil War only happened because the U.S. came in and gave them money. No, people are able to rise up against their dictators without us. They did it in Libya. We just helped them not get massacred by Gaddafi's planes. They've done it like, everywhere. That's It's they normal do it everywhere. for people to get upset and be like, no more of this shit. It has nothing to yeah. do with us. It's the thing where like you'll hear people be like, you know, the white helmets are just like American plants because they've received mm-hmm. international funding. And it's like any given person who has done that job is braver than anyone who has made that complaint will ever be. Like you fucking cowards. Yeah. Con- like accusing them of faking attacks when they are running out every day and pulling. I've seen people do that job, pulling corpses from rubble. It's the worst fucking thing I can imagine. And fuck you for accusing them of being anything but heroes. Like, right. it's so... I get really heated when I talk about this subject. Well, I mean, like, wh- uh, what type of person goes and does that? You know, it's like, it's not yeah. someone who's here. It is, it's incredibly frustrating to be like, yeah. you don't know what these people do every day. You can't you don't conceive know what they see of every it. day. Especially since most of you, I mean, I guess the only dead body you've seen is maybe at a funeral. You can't imagine what these people are going through. Like, you just can't. 
and I am so angry at everyone all the time because of Syria. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. So shout out to my Syrian homies. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> like the the real bastard at the end of this episode is uh, is everybody. And I guess that's one of the things that I, that is really telling to me. Is like you look at Barack Obama is a man who I have intense disagreements with, but I believe has always wanted to do the right thing. Right. But he's also a really really smart guy and a fundamentally a scholar and he thinks through everything too much. And Bashar al-Assad did not. He gambled. He's willing to gamble. Dictators usually are because it's the only way they can prosper. And Barack Obama was not willing to gamble. And as a result, half a million Syrians died. Right. That's what it comes down to. And you can say Obama was right or wrong. That's your opinion. Uh, But this is the reason, this is the, the same basic logic that let Hitler get as far as he did dictators being willing to do the reckless thing and gamble and brave consci or not brave but conscientious decent smart men not being willing to gamble and letting them get away with murder right yep which is neville uh, fucking chamberlain yeah yeah. how do you even like reconcile any of that it's like wow he really didn't step up because he yeah was fucking thinking it out (laughs) like thinking of all yeah the ways it could go wrong and what would happen. And it's like, you can't do any, like, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing. No, to say. it's, it's, it's incredibly tough. And like, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I do, like I would say his failure to respond adequately in Syria is the single worst thing that Obama did. Uh, but if I'm tracing it back, which American I blame most for Syria, it's still going to be George W. Bush and oh, Dick, Cheney. Dick Cheney. Like, you know, they're, they're a team. They're yeah. a team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I am one of those people that will push back a little bit in giving too much credit to Cheney and not enough to Bush because I think he was a more active partner than he, a lot of people give him credit for, Definitely. but fuck both of them. I mean, yeah, he was a fool, but he, yeah. he got to where he was somehow. Yeah. And I, ironically, having a little bit more of that shoot from the hip gut attitude that Bush had right. <laughs> might have been helpful in Syria if, like, yeah. their positions had been reversed, but if we'd never invaded Iraq. Yeah. Um, if only we'd picked the right country to invade and not fucked it up. I don't know. Like, that's even dumb to say. Like, all of it's dumb. Everything's fucked up. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed this episode uh, of my upbeat and fun podcast. You know, it's another reason why I say uh, currently because we're in such high tensions with Iran. Uh, oh, guess who's in bed with Iran? Syria, a psychopath. Yeah, so don't yeah. go after Iran unless you want, you know, some ally heat from like yeah. Syria and Russia. It's not great. We're not in a great place. Let's not fuck with no, the evils, you know? This is part of the thing where it's like, it makes it so hard with like picking a president as like, you want to say pick not a crazy person, but then we get the sanest man who's ever been president. And I think that's probably is Barack Obama. And he's sometimes too careful and people pay the price for it. And now we've got a fuck. I mean, it's certainly having a lunatic in charge is not the right thing. Cause who knows what the fuck Trump's going to do. Right. Um, But maybe presidents are a bad idea. (laughs) I don't know. Should we just have like Like, a parliament? Like so classically European. (laughs) Yeah, that'll work. I don't know. Maybe so European f- they don't have dinner till like 11 p.m. Like so European. 
that'll fix our problems. Or we just make a dog president. That'd be funny. Mm-hmm. Woof woof. No mm-hmm. war. Woof woof. C- couldn't be Thanks, worse, buddy. Buddy, you're so f- great. You're such a good boy. Such a good president. Such yeah. a good president. That's how the I dog still has not appointed a Supreme Court judge. Or if the dog just makes everyone on the Supreme Court be dogs. Mm, a Supreme And then you just train. Supreme yeah. Court dogstis. Mm-hmm. Uh, he peed on the lawyer. I think that means the case is thrown out. Mm, classic move by Spot. Mm-hmm. Chief Justice Spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spot's Chief court Justice really Spot. groundbreaking legal precedent. Yeah. Not in his literally, kennel. You know what I mean? Literally groundbreaking because he dug a lot of holes yeah. uh, in the yard of the uh, of the court. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> did you enjoy this very fun episode of Behind the Bastards, Anna? Look, honestly, like, you know me. I love me episodes about Syria. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, no, it's you know a lot of this um, starting from like how it started. You know, we talked about on our show um, a lot of the background I did not know, which you know is very interesting. Of course, the Brangelina hanging out with them is probably the most shocking thing I've ever learned in my life. Um, yeah, and you know what? For a second, I felt bad saying I hope Asma Al Assad gets cancer, but then it's like now that she has it, it's like oh wait, no, that's just how karma works. Like if you're yeah. a horrible person. We might not be able to get to you, but here's praying that some sort of natural disease or yeah. cause comes for you because you don't seem to care about human life. So why should we care about your human life? You know, like you're not you compared to the millions of innocents of like babies, children, mothers, fathers, grandparents who've died. Who the fuck are you? You don't yep. deserve shit. Yeah, that cancer diagnosis is the most uplifting thing about this episode. Yeah. Good for yep. you, honey. Good have a, for, have good a good for, luck. Good, good luck with that. Good for you, cancer. <laughs> Stupid bitch. Uh, you know, I'm the real dictator. It's like, honey, that's not funny. Millions of people are dead. Like, fuck yeah. you. You're. That's not the joke to make when your husband is literally a dictator. Yeah. Like, but. I don't like these people. Trash-ass bitch. Anyway, you want to uh, <laughs> plug some pluggables? Yeah, Drop you Drop know, down into P-Zone? Um, podcast dictator here, Anna. Um, you know, I have a podcast, Ethnically Ambiguous, with Shereen Yunus. Check it out if you like news on the Middle East. We have an episode called We Are Syria. when we're, we talk, It was right after the airstrikes happened that we kind of break down our feelings and what happened, if you want to go check that out. Uh, and then, you know, of course, all the other episodes you know currently we are talking about the iran u.s tensions situation if you want to listen to that um yeah you can follow me on twitter at anna hosnie a-n-n-a-h-o-s-s-n-i-e-h you know i'm constantly constantly talking politics and other good stuff and you know the bachelor because that's where my interests lie middle eastern politics and the bachelor and uh something interesting i noticed recently robert does not follow me on twitter so (laughs) Whoa, I will burn this goddamn place to the ground. All right, all right. I'll I will correct that. <laughs> I'm bad at social meds and I mostly just shit post and argue podcast with podcast dictator. About yeah, yeah, yeah. And I am a podcast vi- viceroy? Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be a viceroy. You could be general um, podcast general. <laughs> no, I want to be a viceroy. That seems like more fun. Less responsibility Fine. and more of the Parliament cool will consider it. We'll let you know what we <laughs> have decided on. Thank you. 
Well, uh, podcast viceroy Robert Evans signing off. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at @bastardspod. You can find uh, this podcast on the web at behindthebastards.com. I have another podcast called It Could Happen Here about everything that happened to Syria if it happened in America, which actually part of why I made the show is just a backdoor way of trying to make people empathize with the horrible things happening in Syria. Um, and also, you can find t-shirts on Tee Public. Some of them are ours. Others are not. You can buy whichever ones you would like. Uh, Sophie, do I have to say anything else? You love about 40% of us. I do love about 40% of you. And I love 100% of the poison room that's sitting behind Anna right now. Oh my gosh, Red. I love poison. I we all we're all big poison stands. Mm. All right. Uh listeners, uh chill out, enjoy some poison of your own and uh or don't because that might be me inciting you to uh to to do horrible things. Don't do horrible things. Uh do good things, or at least neutral things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sometimes being neutral is... You know what? The episode's done. Uh, <laughs> it's over. Go do something else. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.